recorded. Okay, good morning everybody. I just want to uh, thank Isaac and Leora for hosting us again. Hosted us Friday night. It was such a pleasure and such a nachas to be together with you. It's always great to see you. Yeah, Josh also, but you know. <laughs> um, and uh, it's, it's wonderful to be together with you. I w- again want to thank Rabbi Muskin and, uh, and Rabbi Mahler for, uh, for, for hosting us and for keeping on inviting us uh, back to Los Angeles. It's such a pleasure to spend Shabbos together with you. Um, I, this, this shear is actually part of a series that, uh, that I give every month on Zoom um, to, uh, to the Young Israel Central City. And uh, so I don't know how many of you are familiar with the series or know what we're doing, but what we've been doing this year, I've been enjoying it very much. I don't know if anyone else is, but I've been enjoying it very much. It's a series called Poskim and Psakim, where each month I'm taking a different uh, great posek that maybe we don't know that much about and just describing a little bit about their lives, about who they are, and some of their more important or interesting piskei halacha. And normally it's about, it's about a half hour. I, I'm pretty precise usually that it's like exactly a half hour um, each month and uh, just a different posek each month. And I'm trying to like branch out a little bit that it shouldn't be poskim that you, uh, that everybody is familiar with, meaning uh, you know a lot about Ramosha Feinstein. You know, you don't, you don't need, uh, I, I did a a whole year of a series of Moshe Feinstein, um, but uh, but maybe uh, some, someone people who who uh, either his, they're they're further back in history, so you don't know as much about them, or for whatever reason they're lesser known poskim. So uh, I'm I, I'm going to do uh, the person we're going to discuss today, the personality we're going to talk about today is Rav Tovia Goldstein Zatzal. Um, just curious, show of hands, how many of you have heard of Rav Tovia Goldstein? Okay, not so many, right? So, uh, Rabbi Mahler, that's it. Okay, so, uh, Rav Tovi Goldstein's at Sal. Um, uh, why would I choose Rav Tovi Goldstein? Who was Rav Tovi Goldstein? So we'll talk about that for the next 15 minutes, but I'll tell you why I chose Rav Tovi Goldstein. Rav Tovi Goldstein has a sefer called the Kalacha, and my first year teaching in Yeshiva University, um, for many years I was teaching in DRS and then in Lanzer College for a few years. So my first year in YU, I was teaching uh, Hilchus Nida, and uh, Rav Shechter said to me, what are you teaching this year? I told him Hilchus Nida. He says, oh, Rav Tovi Goldstein has great shuvas on uh, um, you have the safer? I said no. So the next day he brings in three volumes, um, and he says you got you have to you have to learn these uh, these chuvas on Hilchos Nida. And uh, he has like two chuvas in the whole three volumes on Hilchos Nida. There's very little in Hilchos Nida. And Rav Tovi Golsing, Rav Shaftel said he writes so beautifully. He has uh, he has really excellent chuvas. So with that with that haskama, uh, I got interested in, uh, in learning more of Rav Tovi Goldstein's Torah. So uh, I figured we'll share a little bit about who he was and uh, some of his uh, interesting piskei halacha. Not not so much the Hilchos Nida piskei halacha, because again there aren't really that many of them, but uh, and they're a little more complicated. But um, but to talk a little bit about who he was. Rafsuvi Goldstein was born in 1917 in uh, Poland, and his uh, his his father um, and his mother both died when he was a very young child, when he was like two years old. They both had typhus or something, and they both died. And he was taken in by his his uh, his grandfather. His maternal great grandfather was named of David Lieberman, was the rav and the dayan of the city where he was brought up, and uh, and his son-in-law, I mean Rav. Tovi, Sylvia's grandfather, Rav Yoni Yoshua Goldstein, 
was the rav of a place called Vladova, which is right near the town where his great grandfather was was the rav. Uh, his father was the town's sholchet, but like we said, he tragically died at a very young age. So he was taken in by his grandparents, who were very beloved and very respected people, and they raised uh, this this young Tovia. Now, at, at an early age, as you have with many Gedola Yisrael of that of that era, uh, he was already recognized as uh, an extraordinary talent in learning. Now, I say uh, of, of that era, because it used to be in that era, if you weren't an extraordinary talent, you didn't keep on learning, meaning they, 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 they would only develop you in learning and keep you, make sure you get sent to yeshiva if you were extraordinarily talented. Nowadays, we're going to see, and we've already seen in our generation, people become Torah leaders in Gedolei Torah who are not extraordinary talents because we keep everyone in yeshiva learning and sometimes people are late bloomers. You don't really have a chance to be a late bloomer when you were growing up in Europe in the 1920s. You know, that was, uh, you were already, you're already working if you were, if you were a late bloomer. So, uh, so, but he was an extraordinary talent at a young age and when he was 16, he went to the yeshiva in Baranovich. Baranovich was where, of course, Rebbe Chanan Wasserman was Rosh Shiva. So, you know, on the one hand you think, oh, 16, that's seems like a young age to go to learn by Rebbe Chanan Wasserman, but it wasn't really. Rebbe Chanan, all of Rebbe Chanan's Talmudim were about 15, 16 years old. He was teaching in what would be the equivalent of a high school uh, level. Um, I mean, as far as the level of learning, you know, I always comment, like, you look at the Sefer Kovit Shurim. Kovit Shurim is like this Lamdish Sefer. Every Rashiv in the world gives Shir Klali from Kovit Shurim. Uh, it, it is the notes of 15-year-olds from uh, from Ravulchan Wasserman's Shurim, because Ravulchan didn't have, once guys were already 20, 21, they left. They weren't in Baranovich anymore. So uh, so it's it's really remarkable. I mean, the level of learning of, uh, of, of high school, like I said, I taught in high school for many years. <laughs> the, level, the level of learning of uh, what was going on in Bradovich, but uh, when <laughs> so, but when 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 Rav Tuvia came to Bradovich, he became very close to Rav Chanan, and he was Meshamish Rav Chanan. He spent uh, he spent Sedarim by Rav Chanan on Pesach, and that was really his uh, initial primary Rebbe was uh, was Rav Chanan. While in Bradovich, he also became very close with uh, with some some people who later became uh, Gedolei Yisrael and were great friends of his uh, for life, and uh, particularly Rav Nachum Partzavich. Uh, from the Mir Yeshiva was in Baranovich together with Rav Tovia. and then a younger Talmud came when Rav Tovia was there, Rav Shmuel Birnbaum, and Rav Tovia took him under his wing. Rav Shmuel Birnbaum became the Rashiva of the Mir in Brooklyn. He was, I remember I once had the opportunity to introduce Rav Shmuel Birnbaum. He came to give a, uh, a holiday, uh, you know, a legal holiday shear in Shari Tefillah when I was the assistant rabbi there, and the rabbi was away, so he asked me to introduce Rav Shmuel Birnbaum. Um, that was hard. Uh, he was like this, this giant uh, who uh, never wasted a moment, and he was really one of the Gedolei Torah of his uh, generation. But uh, so he was he was really mentored in a certain sense by by Rav Tuvia. And when Rav Tuvia would go home from Baranovich, he would stop in Brisk to meet with Rav Simcha Zelig. Rav Simcha Zelig was the Dayan in Brisk. Um, they say that Rav Chaim used to refuse to pass in any of the Shailas in Brisk, and he would whenever he had a Shaila, he would ask Rav Simcha Zelig, and Rav Chaim would say, "I want you to give me a tshuva. I want you not to explain your answer to me." Because Reb Chaim knew his own mind. He knew that if he had an explanation of the answer, he would come up with 15 questions on the answer and he wouldn't uh, trust it anymore. But he trusted Rav Simchazelik to give him the answer. So Rav Tuvia became close with Rav Simchazelik just from his visits to, uh, 
uh, to 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 brisk along the way. He also visited with Rav Chaim Eizer, and and that made a tremendous impact on him. And then in 1937, Rav Tuvia, at the age of around 20, which is when people left Branovich, he didn't stay in Branovich for that long. He went to uh, Kamenetz, and he learned by Rav Baruch Ber. Um, Baruch Ber was, of course, the prime Talmud of Reb Chaim Brisker. Um, and in fact, uh, I think we once, maybe once did a, I don't remember if we did a shir on Reb Ber once, but if we, if we did, I probably mentioned the story where uh, they asked the Brisker Rav, like, what's the difference between Reb Ber and the other Talmudim of Reb Chaim? And the Brisker Rav said, if uh, the other Talmudim, of, if Reb Chaim would say, this table, in a certain sense, it's like a cow. So the other Talmudim would say, oh, it has four legs, like a cow has four legs. Rabbi Baruch Ber would try to milk the table. Meaning, like, he, he, took, he took everything Rabbi Chaim said, like, as, as uh, such Torah min Hashemayim. So, uh, so learning by Rabbi Baruch Ber was, was almost the equivalent of learning by Rabbi Chaim. And they say Rabbi Baruch Ber was, uh, was, was mechabed Rav Tovia tremendously. He, uh, he would stand up for Rav Tovia when Rav Tovia would walk by. He was really that exceptional of a Talmud. And, and, and Rabbi Baruch Ber really shaped his derech halimud. Uh, you know his ability to analyze things in the uh, the Brisker methodology, and uh, and that that was uh, that became his Rebbe Mufak. So Rebbe Chanu Asmer and Rebbe Baruch Ber were his two primary influences in terms of his his learning during the the Holocaust uh, or before the Holocaust. He was actually uh, captured by Russians and was sent to Siberia along with a group of forty other Bachrim, which seemed like a very terrible thing to happen. But thank God it did. He never would have survived probably had he not been sent to. Siberia, and uh, in, in and there are amazing stories of what was going on while they spent five years in Siberia. And it, you think about this, and you think about someone in like really the formative years of his learning and his growth in Torah and Yerushalayim. He's in his early twenties, and and was in Siberia, and he had no access to Svarim, and no uh, it, how does a person even have the head to even try to learn? He's working all day, and to still become a Gadol B'Torah. Uh, despite that, is really remarkable. Um, but the stories of what happened there were just uh, amazing. In the first volume of Emekalacha, they have a little biography, like a 15-page biography of Rav Tovia, and it tells some of the stories about how uh, there was one mo- there was one time where they were about to all be killed, and uh, and and some Russian officer came, and uh, like some high-ranking officer came, and he said, "What's going on over here?" And uh, they said, "Well, they're they're being insubordinate. They refuse to." work, it was Shabbos or something, they refused to work so we're just going to, you know, off them we're just going to kill them, and the officer said, no way, and he stopped the whole thing and it turned out that the officer was Jewish and his mother had told him that, do whatever you can to help the Jews, and uh, it's just like some remarkable Siat Shmaya stories of, uh, of Yad Hashem that he managed to, uh, to, to his, his life was saved, obviously you know, it was like 40 degrees below zero when they were sitting there laying tracks, you know, for, for a train and you know, building things, it was just uh, it was just uh, unbelievable, but he made it. He survived, and after the war, he went to France and he learned um, in France by Mordechai Pargamansky, who was a big gadol there. And then ultimately, he made his way to the United States. And when he uh, arrived in the United States, Rebetzin Shima Feinstein, Sima Feinstein in Litvish, it's right Sima, but it's Shima, really, you know, like Litvak. Right, by Lit, Litvak, they, they quote Zuck Rossi 
right? You know, they, they pronounce the shin as a, right? So, uh, so uh, Rebetzin Shima Feinstein or Sima Feinstein, all the Tendlers all have uh, someone in the family named Sima, right? That's all named after uh, Rebetzin Feinstein. So anyway, she found out that Rav Tuvia and his Rebetzin, Rav Tuvia got married after the war. He found uh, uh, his, his wife was someone who wanted to marry Ben Torah, which was also a miracle, because there were a lot of people that, uh, in that in that day and age that could not find anyone who wanted to marry Ben Torah. Ben Torah was the last thing anyone uh, wanted to marry, and uh, he found uh, his, his wife was someone who very much wanted to marry Ben Torah, and Rebetzin Feinstein heard that they had arrived, and she secured an apartment for them in Rav Moshe's building, and that began a decades-long friendship between Rav Tovia and, and Rav Moshe, to, to the point that it became known that if you show up to the Lower East Side and Rav Moshe is not available for some reason, you go downstairs to Rav Tovia and you ask him the Shaila. Rav Moshe trusted Rav Tovia, Rav Tovia was, uh, was, was a real presence in the Lower East Side, and not only that, Rav Moshe trusted Rav Tovia in the following sense. When Rav Moshe would write tshuvas, Rav Moshe had a very unique style of writing tshuvas. He, um, he was obviously the Posek Adar. He was the address for everything. It wasn't even, you know, there was no question that Rav Moshe was, uh, was the Posek Adar. Um, but uh, when Rav Moshe's style was somewhat unique in that he knew Shas, Rishonim, Shulchan Aruch, Shach, Taz, Primagadim, Balpeh. All of it Balpeh. He knew that Balpeh. What contemporary posts can say? What a tshuva that was written a hundred years ago said? He wasn't interested. He didn't read that stuff. That wasn't. He developed his own mahalich in every sugya. And you know, if you look through the kinds of svarim that Rav Moshe quotes, he quotes a Nodbi Huda, Chasam Sofer, maybe like the most famous tshuvas. But uh, other than that, he's not quoting you know too many other uh, other achronim. Unlike let's say Rav, you know, the the absolute extreme would be Rav Vadi Yosef, who quotes achronim you never heard of, achronim that uh, you know achronim including his next door neighbor, his upstairs his neighbor is, you know, like, uh, he's just quoting everybody. Um, but Ramosha wasn't like that. Ramosha realized that a lot of the tshuvas he wrote might have been dealt with by earlier postkim already, and he just wasn't familiar. So he would send his tshuvas to Rav because Rav Tuvia was very familiar with all literature, to look over and say, you know, just let me know if there's something out there. And I, I did a quick uh, Barilan search of, of Igros Moshe, and you find examples in Igros Moshe, Yerdeche Lekal Simen Kofayin Vav, Yerdeche where he constantly says, Oh, Rav Tuvia informed me there's a Shailas Yaivitz about this. I heard from my Yedidi, Rav Tuvia Agon, Rav Tuvia Goldstein, that there's a Rav Yaakov Enden on this, or there's a Rav Mordechai Banet on, uh, on this. Rav Meisha wouldn't have known if there's a Rav Mordechai Banet on, on something, but Rav Tuvia would know these things. There's a Tshuva Zera Yitzchak, you know, these are the kinds of things Rav Moshe never would have quoted, Rav Moshe never would have known, or there's an Oruch Lener, and Mesechas Nida, something like that. Those are the, 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 the Marimakomos that Rav Tuvia informed Rav Moshe of. Rav Tuvia also was an extraordinary uh, Balmidos. Uh, Rav Tuvia in one of his Shmuzin once said that the best way to be Mashpia on people in Ruchni is, is to demonstrate Midos Tovos because people will want to be more like somebody who has, uh, who has Midos Tovos and he had a Shtukl Torah where he explained that Avraham Avinu was so successful and Noach was not because Noach was Miktane Amana and Miktane Amana is a Chisarin in, in, in Midos that uh, in a certain uh, sense of one's own spiritual uh, um, and, 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 uh, and emotional uh, and, and uh, 
uh, interpersonal well-being. So most, so, so that that that, hin- that that hampers a person's ability to uh, affect other people. And that Reptovia lived that. He was a tremendously positive influence on people, even people who couldn't learn much and couldn't appreciate his Torah because they were able to relate to his extraordinary midos. And that's something that everybody can relate to. You don't need to be a Tamil Chacham to be able to relate to someone's extraordinary midos. Ah, so we'll get. So he started a yeshiva. Um, first, he taught in RJJ. He taught in, uh, for for many years, uh, and then he relocated to Borough Park. And when he re- relocated to Borough Park, he started a yeshiva called Emek Halacha. And Emek Halacha became like a real major place. It was uh, it was uh, it opened on 62nd Street and then moved to 63rd Street in shuls that were that had dwindling uh, membership. So uh, so they uh, they opened the yeshiva. He, so he set up the yeshiva during uh, a time period in American history where the concept of hora'a of halacha was not really something that was very popular, meaning the idea of teaching how to be a posek, of how to deal with halacha was not something that was very popular in the United States, um, but it became one of the country's leading uh, kolim and places where people were trained in, uh, in learning halacha. And he established this yeshiva called uh, Emek Halacha, which is also the name of his uh, of his sefer. And eventually, the people of the neighborhood in Borough Park opened up a kihila. They started a shul, and they asked him to be the rabbi of the shul as well. And that was something that uh, that that he did very well. I think he was the camp rabbi in Camp Manavu. Um, anyone anyone remember Camp Manavu? Yes, I think uh, I think he was the camp rabbi. He never spoke English. Rabbi never learned English. He was uh, he only spoke Yiddish. Um, you know that was, uh, but but I think he was somehow the camera. I, I think I think I saw that somewhere. Anyway, at the end of, a li- of his life, he was hospitalized for a while, and he had like a constant stream of talmidim that would go and uh, be mishamish him and try to be there with him and gather together and daven for him. He was uh, when he passed away in 2002, I think it was something like that. Um, he, the the maspidim were Rav Shmuel Birnbaum, who was sort of uh, he mentored Rav Shmuel Birnbaum, Rav Chaim Pinchas Sheinberg, Rav Yerucham Olshin, um, the Lakewood Rosh Hashiva, and then they brought him to Eretz Yisrael, and he was, uh, Rav Yitzchak Shiner was Masbidim, Rav Tzipartzavich, who uh, was uh, the Rosh Mir Brachveld, uh, was Masbidim, and uh, he, his own children are Tamid Chachamim. He has a son of uh, Rav Meir, a son of Mordechai, who is Maradasra, of Mishkanos Yaakov neighbor in Ramat Beit Shemesh. His daughter is married to Rav Yosef Mermelstein. Uh, Rav Yosef Mermelstein is Rosh Yeshiva of the Novominsker Yeshiva, um, which, uh, I, I mean, his other claim to fame is that he's I think, I think it's known, he's the wealthiest Rosh Yeshiva in the world. Um, I think he's worth like $400 million or something like that. <laughs> I, don't know if I, I don't remember how exactly, but, uh, but anyway, so, uh, so that, I think that's... Uh, but but his, his other claim to fame is that he's, uh, he's a big, big Tamil Chacham. He's a Rosh Yeshiva in, uh, in Navminsk, and he's the... Uh, and and he's he's the son of Rav Tovi Goldstein. So what are some of his interesting psukim? Did he ever have a relationship with the Rosh? I doubt was it. Was his salvation? Um, oh, because of his connection with Rav Baruch Ber. Yeah. I never heard of anything that uh, that, that he had. I, I don't know. Um, the the uh, so so unless anyone knows, does, and, uh, I guess if you never heard of Tovi Goldstein, you're not going to know if he had a relationship with Rav. But uh, I'll, I'll, I'll go through some of his uh, interesting Piskei Alach. What I found interesting, he has a lot of, uh, most of his, uh, there are three volumes of the Sefer Emekalacha. And by the way, there are two Svarim called Emekalacha. There's another Sefer called Emekalacha that's not authored by Rav Tzavi Goldstein. That's authored by Rav Baumel, who was Rabbi Lamb's grandfather. So not to be confused, which, who was also an enormous Tamil Chacham and had fascinating,
fascinating uh, tshuvas. But this uh, this Emek Halacha is Rav Tovi Goldstein, and most of the essays in Emek Halacha were not classic Shilas and tshuvas. Meaning, it wasn't someone asked a fascinating question about uh, you know an Israeli Navy person on a boat, and they want to save the Chalins or whatever. Like, I mean, and, and he's responding to uh, to a Shaila. Most of it is like a kuntras b'inyan, meaning he says topic, you know, the, 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 t- ten pages on kavana b'tefila. You know, so it's not like the kinds of things people ask about necessarily, but it's the kinds of things that he had what to share about. And and even the things that clearly were tshuvas, he doesn't write them as tshuvas. He writes it as b'inyan, you know, but you could tell because the longer pieces were not responses to Shailas, I think, in my assessment. The shorter pieces were probably uh, responses to, uh, to Shailas that he, uh, that he published. So there are a few a few posts, a few psakim that I'd, that I'd like to discuss in the uh, 10 minutes or 12 minutes we have remaining. Um, first of all, he has a truth about riding bicycles on Shabbos. Um, you know, as a rub in Borough Park in those days, or in the Lower East Side, uh, you know, what's wrong with riding a bicycle on Shabbos? So uh, a lot of people wondered, meaning, is a bicycle so, so different than a stroller? Right, meaning everyone pushes strollers on Shabbos. Why would a bicycle be so different than a stroller? Why not ride a bicycle on Shabbos? I have a doctor in my shul that asked me once um, when he when he's on call and he has to go to the hospital. Um, should he should he take a bicycle? Meaning, if it's not an emergency situation where he has to get there immediately, but he you know is it better for him to take a bicycle than to uh, get in a car? Probably, right? Meaning, uh, so so uh, so the the shaila is: is there any problem with riding a bicycle on Shabbos? So Rav Tovia uh, deals sensitively with the issues of halacha, and then with the issues of hashkafa and public policy, and that's something that a Rav has to be able to do when dealing with these kinds of questions. So he quotes the Chuvas Benishchai, the, the the or the the Rav Paalim, the Benishchai in his Sefer Chuvas uh, Rav Paalim, where he very famously permitted the use of bicycles. The you know, great Spartak Posek in the early part of the 20th century, and he was a makel in riding bicycles. And there are a whole bunch of later Spartan that say, no, obviously he changed his mind later, and he just forgot to tell everybody, you know, things like that. You know, you have, uh, you have, you have a, a whole bunch of literature like that. Um, Tzitz Eliezer and Rav Avadia were uh, ostered riding bicycles on Shabbos, and there are three basic reasons that they give. Reason number one is that if it breaks, you might fix it, similar to not playing a musical instrument, that uh, something that easily, can easily be fixed if it breaks, and that's going to be a violation of Makkah on Shabbos to fix up a broken bicycle. But it's only the day here, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, certainly only if there's an error. Second, that it's uv that, uh, that it's considered a weekday activity, so a person shouldn't do it. And third, that you might leave the Tchum Shabbos, that it's so easy to travel a long distance when you're on a bicycle, so we have to make a Gzera that you might leave the Tchum Shabbos. So Rav Tuvi quotes that in the Rav Pa'olim in the Hashmatos, if you look in the back of the Sefer, he has additions to some of the Tshuvas that he has. So the Rav Pa'olim, who wrote the original Tshuva, deals with some of those Tainas. And he says, as far as the concern that it might bring he says, Gamze Hevel Velonitan Lehe Omer, the Rav Palim says. That's ridiculous. He says, Chada Dein Klize Oluliskalkel. He said, Bicycles don't really break so often. Uh, depends on the quality of your bicycle, depends how you use your bicycle. So he says, uh, well, look, the bike for high people that ride those bicycles, you know, up to the mountains, you know, hundreds of miles, they, 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 
take out a tire and patch yeah. it up and put it back on and like you know but like a children's bicycle doesn't break so often oh a chain could come off and you put the chain back on so he says it doesn't break so often but oh and he says more importantly Chazal made a xeri, not let it play a musical instrument because it might break and you might fix it. Chazal never made a xeri, not let it ride a bicycle. So we're not allowed to make our own xeros. That's a point one of the Rav Paul. As far as Uvda Dechal, the Rav Paul says, Lekab says, Zilzul Mishn Uvda Dechal, Kimishu Betocha Ir, Shish Be'eruf, Dekal Ir, Nachshavis Kurushos Ayachid, Dieshus Machalamatim Bezabeferish. He says, You're in an Eruf, you're in a city that I don't see it as Uvda Dechal. Uvda Dechal would mean you're traveling outside out of the Erev or something like that, but everything that's local, a bunch of kids riding around on a bicycle in a cul-de-sac is not, uh, he doesn't, the uh, Rav Palm doesn't think it's of the Dechal, not that the uh, Rav Palm knew what a cul-de-sac was, but, you know, the, uh, but he, he, he didn't think it was of the Dechal. He doesn't address the concern that you might leave the Tchum, just the concern that people will confuse this with other modes of transportation, right? The Rav Palm says, and the fact that people say, oh, if you ride a bicycle, maybe I should be able to go on a train also, maybe I should be able. so uh, the Rav Palm says, that's ridiculous, he says, Gam who would make such a mistake? The fact that you now let a ride on a on, on a wagon pulled by animals, it's because there are animals pulling you. Everyone realizes that that's different than a bicycle. If I'm a bicycle, like a behema. A bicycle isn't an animal, so no one's going to make uh, such a, uh, a, con- a confusion. He says, and a uh, wagon of fire. Uh, I think it means a train. Um, you know, <laughs> also, he says, or a car, right? That everyone knows that there's ash involved over here. It's a bicycle. There's no one. It's a purely mechanical. There's no. There's no. No reason to uh, to assume. So he starts the whole shuvah with that Rav Paulim, who dismisses all of the tainas ta'asa riding a bicycle. Then, no, uh, he, right, he didn't discuss that. I mean, I don't think bike, bike riding was viewed as a form of exercise till more recently. Meaning, I think it was, it was viewed as a form of transportation. It wasn't uh, something that people would be misamel. Um, but Rav Tuvi surveys the literature, and he assesses the arguments in both directions, and he also discusses why a baby stroller would be different than a bicycle, and he concludes that strollers are okay, but bicycles are a problem, except for tricycles. He says, a, a kid on a tricycle, no one's going to think he's traveling outside the tchum. No one's going to, meaning it's obviously just a kid doing, uh, you know, it's a, it's a toy. It's a, it's a toy like any other toy. And then he compares it to riding a subway or a bus that stays within the tchum. What if you have a, uh, a, a, local, a local bus where it's technically mutter, right? If there's a bus that's running anyway, they're not running for the Jews, right? And, uh, and they let you on for some reason without paying. Um, so technically that would be Mutter, but he points out that his neighbor, Rav Moshe, in Yerdei Chelikavs, in Mem Dalid, in Igris Moshe, said that you can't do it. Why can't you go on the bus if they don't make you pay? He says, because usually buses do make you pay. And therefore, it's going to be of the Dechol, because you're doing something that normally would involve having to pay, and that, that, that would be a uh, terrible zilzal of Shabbos. Rav Moshe writes, Chas v'sholom lahatir dover kazeh, after the Devar Mitzvah, even for the sake of Mitzvah, let's say someone's elderly, they're not able to make it to Shul other than if they get on a bus. Rav Moshe says, you can't be matirit. The Yisr Maris Ayin Vada Yesh it's for sure Maris Ayin. Kibin Deruba Lo Yanichon Lisa Belo Tashlumen. Most of the time, buses don't let you on without paying. 
So everyone's going to be choshed that a person who gets on a bus must have paid for it. And it's a violation of hotza and total mutza. Meaning if you carried money with you. And even if nobody pays for the buses, something that everyone does, you know, as their mode of transportation to work, and that you can allow that on Shabbos, even if there's a free bus that runs, you know, Saturdays buses run free, you know, even if you have such a situation, it's the, it's, that's how people go to work. You can't be matter that, Ramoshes, you can't be matter that on Shabbos. It's interesting because in Florida a few years ago, they had a shayla in one of these uh, senior communities, so a lot of the seniors are unable to make it to shul on Shabbos, and it's very upsetting to them. So, and not everyone has one of the uh, Tzomet, uh, you know, uh, scooters, right? Um, so tzomet scooters are good. You know, you could use. I mean, you could ask about that. But but the um, but 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 uh, there was some of these senior communities have a bus that runs 24 not 24 seven probably, but uh, seven days a week, and it's not running for the Jewish people. It's running for everybody. And whether there's one person on it or 50 people on it, it's still going to run every 15 minutes. The bus is just going to make the circle around the whole neighborhood to pick up people, drop them off at the you know at the different spots in the neighborhood. So it's a big shaila. Are Jewish people allowed to go on? that bus in order to get to shul on Shabbos. If you think about it, none of Rav Moshe's tainas apply. Right? You don't pay. Um, it's, not, it's not a middle of the nacht because they're not doing it for you. They're doing it anyway. Um, you're, not, you're, you're certainly not doing any malacha. It's not a way that they get to work. Nobody there works, right? Mm-hmm. Meaning it's not... Uh, so l'chora, none of Rav Moshe's tainas apply. Does it make a difference that if, I'm assuming in Boca, you know, in, in, in Boca that a lot, maybe the Ruba, the people are, are Jews? It might make a difference if Rupert Rupert of the people are Jews, because then it is running for the Jews. Right. right. So that would make a difference, yeah, if that's, if that's the case. Um, if I recall, um, Rav Shachter wasn't sure what the answer would be, and uh, he may have expressed that to someone, and some of the Rabbanim in Florida weren't so happy, uh, because they said,